from the entertainment capital of the world, Las Vegas. I'm Christopher Calloway, your host for Creator Talks. My guest today on this special September 1st interview is Sean Chen. He is the artist of EXO, Iron Man, Wolverine, and Batman Beyond. He joins me today to discuss the September 1st only 24-hour digital drop of Wingman, compendium of an artist's first writing experience. And the compendium is about Sean's first writing experience. Wingman was inspired by the 1957 classic Swedish art film The Seventh Seal, directed by Ingmar Bergman. The digital version of Sean's book is available free and in its entirety on Next Chapter's Instagram at Next Chapter Post. The physical copy not only contains the story, but also a page-by-page look at Sean's creative process. Why did Sean decide to post the story on Instagram and partner with Next Chapter for the physical edition rather than launching a Kickstarter campaign? And hey, don't worry for listening to our interview too late to get that physical copy. There is still plenty of discussion of Sean's career from Valiant to Marvel and the lessons he's learned about making comics. We talk about how Sean first broke into comics working for Valiant, learning from Barry Windsor Smith and Bob Layton, and then when he went to Marvel to work on Iron Man for the launch of Marvel's Heroes Return, working with Kurt Busiek. And when I kick back with the creator, I find out how Sean likes to relax his island book and what he considers his missed opportunities. And it seems only fitting that since Sean is here to discuss the one-day digital drop of his book, Wingman, I start my conversation with Sean talking about the day I first met him at a Valiant Comics one-day tour back in the 90s. So, please join me in welcoming my guest, Sean Chen, artist and now writer of Wingman. Here now on Creator Talks. Sean, welcome to Creator Talks. Thanks a lot for having me. I'm looking forward to talking to you for some time. Me too. I mentioned this to you a couple of years ago when we met at Baltimore Comic Con. We first met back during a Valiant one-day tour in 1993 at a comic shop whose name I cannot remember off of Island Avenue outside of Philadelphia. It was like down in a basement somewhere. That was where the shop was, down in the basement. And you were there, and you were sitting next to Catherine Bollinger, and Mike Leake was there, and Tom Ryder was there, and John Hartz was there. You guys were signing prints, and I still have my prints in front of me here. Uh, you were promoting Rye and the Future Force with Catherine, and they were also promoting Hardcore. And John was asking questions of everyone. They win Chromium cards. I won one, a Bloodshot card. I was going through my notes, and I rarely keep a diary. I kept one briefly. The only significant thing about that was it was my first trip to a comic shop in Vermont, which was really, really exciting. Not so much a shop, but a bunch of back issues. And when I studied karate, I kept notes. So that's kind of a diary of how I was doing that day. And this event is the only other time I wrote down what happened. Do you recall that one-day tour back in 93? I don't. I usually remember events. I don't remember dates, but that would be right at the very beginning of my career. So yeah, that goes back quite a ways. I remember we did a lot of those things. I mean, Valiant really was pounding the pavement hard to push the books. So yeah, there was a lot of that stuff. I don't remember that specific one, but you know, I remember we we did a lot of those kinds of things early on. You must remember how you got in there because I understand it was Barry Windsor Smith himself who discovered you. I've been going to uh, San Diego Comic-Con, basically uh, trying to break in. It took maybe three times. My MO would be to get a portfolio together this is what I was told to do. And then um, just bring it to the shows and initially just get uh, opinions of many artists and then also many editors without the goal of getting work, but 
just getting better so you can get work. And I understood that the horizon for getting work could be years. And for some people, it never happens. So um, I just kind of did my due diligence there and would get maybe like 100 opinions on my work. When I get home, I would start preparing, getting better for the next show a year later. I think it was my third time out there. I was hanging out with David Mazzucchelli. I met at a show in New York and showed him my stuff. And you know, he always says that that stuff looked like it was ready to go. And we kind of become friends and he gave very good critique and very good advice. So I was there at his table in San Diego and then the publisher of Valiant came by trying to get David Mazzucchelli to work for Valiant. And David said, well, I'm not really doing that sort of thing now, but this guy is. And then uh, he showed him my portfolio. So Steve Masarski said, well, why don't you come by the table? And this looks good to me. Just come by and then have a meeting with one of our uh, editors there. So when I went there, it was actually Barry Windsor Smith. Maybe Bob Layton saw it and said, well, this can go to the next round. <laughs> the person with the control, the gatekeeper was uh, Barry Windsor Smith. So I showed it to him and then um, said, this looks good. So when we get back, you know, let's keep in touch and we'll get something going. So that was basically how it all happened. It was through Barry Windsor Smith. And of course, the big selling point for going to work for Valiant was Barry was there. So I can kind of continue working under him. Yeah, I was very influenced, especially with Weapon X. That was the project where I kind of discovered him and just really fell in love with his style and just really became obsessed with how he drew a blend of European kind of organic stuff and the superhero stuff mixed together. And I felt like, oh, that is for me. <laughs> and uh, I was very fortunate to get in at Valiant there. You know, I moved from Washington, D.C. to New York just to start there. It all started with him. Now, Barry Windsor Smith was the art director. Bob Layton was the editor-in-chief. Do you have any recollections of working with them? Any specific advice or direction they gave you? What was their style? Before I started working with Barry, you know, I heard that he can be kind of prickly. I mean, as far as I was concerned, a living legend. And they always say like, no, don't meet your idols. But he was always extremely nice. Just very careful not to push you into a certain style, but just to make you the best artist that you are. And ironically, you know, he wasn't there for much longer after I started at Valiant. The time with him was very short. But of course, I listened to everything he said. And my attitude is that you don't need a whole semester of classes. That's, you know, how kids learn is that you tell them over and over again, pretty much the same thing until they stop doing whatever's wrong. I knew that if I really opened up my ears, that it would take just a few sessions and he can diagnose whatever is wrong about my work. And I took the point of view that it would continue to be wrong long after I thought I corrected it. So I'll just keep working on whatever he said. And even to this day, I still remember all of his lessons because, you know, when you really want to listen, you can really listen. <laughs> Uh, but ironically, uh, he wasn't there that long. Bob Layton was there much longer. And I think he was uh, probably more instrumental to me developing as a comic book artist because I didn't really grow up reading comics. I knew all the superheroes from you know, the Sunday papers and on TV. But drawing comics, for me, uh, my first exposure was heavy metal magazine. So it was more European, uh, like Mobius, Juan Jimenez, and artists like that. They have a different way of telling a story and they have different types of story. So that's kind of what I drew. And I remember that was the biggest stumbling block where they said, like, well, this guy can draw, but he's just not getting the superhero stuff. But really, the best person to learn all that from was Bob Layton. He got it. And uh, he can spend a lot of time with me, like showing how action should be big and bombastic. And so I spent a lot of time working under him. And between the two of them, I think I had a great education in comics. I really needed a crash course. I had to admit that I probably was hired because after the death of Superman, you know, they're hiring everybody and putting out as much stuff as possible because it's like printing money. Um, so in that climate, I was able to get hired and I understood that. So I just made it my goal to say like, well, I'm lucky to have gotten in with my work. I'm probably am not ready for prime time, but because of an accelerated prison market, I'm working now. 
So I'm going to make the best of it and learn as much as possible. And you know, with that attitude and with those two people as mentors, I think that really helped move me along faster. To put things in context, you mentioned it was like printing money making comics back then after Death of Superman. And your first book, Ryan the Future Force, sold 900,000 copies. I mean, imagine that today, practically unheard of, unless it's something with multiple, multiple covers. And it's still very rare to hit that kind of number now. And you were there with Ride of Future Force and continued to work for Valiant after Acclaim came in and they had the Birthquake and they started putting out books twice a month and they would rotate the teams and you worked on Bloodshot, one of my many favorites at Valiant and Eternal Warrior. And even after they went away and they tried to come back with a new owner, you did the cover for the reprint of the uh, Exo Manowar Birth a hardback back in 2008. I remember that. Yeah, all that was kind of a blur to me. Uh, I'll admit that while I was there, I really should have spent more time just living in the moment of working for Valiant uh, without any context of knowing the comic book industry. I knew Valiant was a small company, and I don't think I appreciated it as much as I should have. I have always had my eye on Marvel and DC, particularly Marvel. I would do my best work for Valiant, but the reason was so that I can step on <laughs> into Marvel. So I, I mean, it's very fortunate that I worked on Exo Man of War when Acclaim took over. And then that was right about the time when Marvel was getting Iron Man and a bunch of those books back from Image where they leased out those characters. So that event called Heroes Return, I think they were looking to make a splash where all the key heroes are coming back to Marvel. You know, me having drawn X amount of wars, I'm within striking distance of they look at it and say, like, I, I can tell what his Iron Man will look like because, you know, this is a blue armored flying guy and Iron Man's a red armored flying, red and gold. So it would be a simple crossover if they thought the work was good enough. So I was lucky to get on that. So it was a very fortunate timing in that sense. You were trained by Bob Layton, and then later on, there you are working on Iron Man, a book that he was and still is famous for. What was it like working with Kurt Busiek? Oh, he was great. I see myself kind of as a facilitator of writers. So, you know, if Marvel selected him to be the writer, I would make it my job just to realize his vision as much as possible. And I, I really took myself out of it. Like, I'm not sure what I wanted to bring in myself, but I wanted to serve his story and what the editorial wanted. And he was great. He also went to bat for me, like there's some crazy things going on at Marvel. So he was a great protector and he was a great collaborator that we can actually talk about the stories. And I don't really do that too much anymore because these days you get this full script and then sometimes you never speak to the writer. Sometimes you only speak to the editor only through email. So this was a true collaboration. There was a lot of meetings. If the story was set in Seattle, then you know we would do a convention in Seattle together and hang out for a bit. He would show me the sites and then talk about the future of the book and ask me like what I would like to draw or whatever. So in that sense, it was great. And I just really want to do the best for him and for Marvel. He was always very nice. <laughs> yeah, he was also, I think, a little bit stretched in because he was the big writer at the time. I think he may have had like five projects going at once. And I didn't know exactly where Iron Man fit in in that whole roster. I mean, he had his own creator own thing. Uh, and then he had um, a bunch of bigger books, like the bigger Avengers book with George Perez and all that. So... Uh, he was stretched thin. So <laughs> there's a lot of times where he would have to kind of fill in a little bit because of how much he had to do. And yeah, but other than that, it was a great working relationship. Still very much friends to this day. And since then, you've been at conventions, you've been doing commissions. I've popped by. You did a wonderful commission for me of Dr. Solar on a cover of Solar through Dynamite, number one. It was a blank cover, and you did a wonderful black and white with star background. And I met you at another con. It was Jersey Con, and you had a commission of Bloodshot that someone didn't pick up. I'm like, really? He's like, oh, yeah, I'll sell that to you instead of doing commission. And I'm like, okay, that sounds great. And uh, 
I'm wondering with all those commissions you're doing, what is the most frequently requested commission? It's funny because if you draw a commission, well, and you put it on Instagram where people see it or it gets passed around the art community, they'll say like, oh, Sean draws a great, you know, Wolverine. And then you get a bunch of Wolverine. And, you know, it's my job to draw them all very well. So I'll look into their background and, and try to understand the character at what age they are and, and then try to draw the quintessential rogue or whatever. And then I'll put it out there and they're like, oh, Sean can draw a rogue. I don't know what else you can draw, but you can draw this. And then there'll be a bunch of those. <laughs> so, but I think by and large, I draw Wolverine a lot, which I love doing because he's a cool looking character in the costume or out of the costume, doing whatever, just a head sketch or like a full figure with background. I can do that all day. Um, the other request, I guess, is I was also connected to Wolverine for a couple of years. I did that book. And then the one that I'm most known for, of course, is Iron Man. <laughs> and that's tough because I don't know how much I really like drawing armored costumes. I ended up drawing that book because I started drawing EXO. <laughs> I think I could bring a lot to EXO because I'm a former industrial design major. So you draw man-made objects very well. And then I was not really good at drawing figures because... I mean, that's all relative, but you can kind of draw man-made objects because there's an algorithm in your head that you can understand them, like how they're lit, the structure behind them. But when it comes to human body, it's all organic and there's really nothing to really latch onto. It's just, it's just like blobs and <laughs> muscles and bones and they contort and when they change, they'll change shapes. So that took longer to learn. I mean, that's also why I ended up drawing Iron Man, because he's all covered up. It's tedious to draw that spectral highlights and reflections on him. Just the way the mechanics stuff, I could really get into how the mechanics work. But then in comics, you cheat everything. So how do you <laughs> bend the metal and everything? And that really would fry my brain. But I did so much of it in my life, not out of pure love for that type of character, <laughs> but because it, it fit my skill set and it was what was available. So I completely understand that people identify me with Iron Man, and they request it a lot. So I'm more than happy to do it, but I'll be happier to do Batman or Spider-Man. <laughs> All of your work, a lot of it can be seen on your Instagram, Sean Chen Art. And that leads to what's coming up now. A while back, you were publishing a story. At the time, it was called The Seventh Seal. And now it's been retitled Wingman. And you can see the whole thing under at next chapter post which we're going to get into next. Wingman draws on the classic Swedish art film from 1957, The Seven Seal. And that was written and directed by Igmar Bergman. It was set in Sweden during the 14th century Black Death. It tells the journey of a medieval knight who was played by Max von Sydow. And he played, for those who don't know him, Ming the Merciless in the 1980 Flash Gordon movie, among many other things, which you might know him from that. And the knight wants to play a chess game with death because he's trying to delay his own death. This is the first story that you have written, Sean, and illustrated. Why did you pick that one? It wasn't really a, a seriously considered choice. I'm a lot like many comic book artists out there is that we just draw stories that other people write. I think I heard an interview where someone said that every artist should draw a story once in their life, at least just to know their own voice. So that kind of got me kind of concerned. And as an artist, you have a usually like a big sci-fi uh, thriller epic in your head. And I'm not sure why it is that artists carry around like these huge stories, like Star Wars, <laughs> uh, space opera type things, rather than something very simple. And because it's so large, they also never end up doing it. They'll just wake up and one day and they're 45. And then that thing that they've been carrying on for 20 years never really got off the ground. Or, you know, they'll write a lot of um, notes and draw some sketches in their sketchbook, but completely different from actually finishing or actually even doing the story. 
so I was kind of in that boat. And so I kind of made a deal with myself that I'm going to, whatever the next thing that popped into my head that I think would be cool, usually it would pop out of my head because something cool will replace it. And that's another thing is that you start a lot of things and never finish them. So I said, well, the next one I'm going to finish, no matter what it is. So it was this strange idea of taking those two characters from the seventh seal and then doing some sort of like comedy thing with it. It was pointed out to me when I put out the first few pages, I think on Instagram, that it's a lot like Bill and Ted's Bogus Adventure, which is a movie that I've never seen. <laughs> so when I went to go look it up on YouTube, like, oh yeah, it's, I'm not sure if it's just like uh, great minds thinking alike, or maybe I subliminally got into my head. So <laughs> in any case, that was bad news because this one's over then because I'm supposed to finish this one, but the premise is shot from the start. So then I decided that well, I'm going to go and actually watch the seven seals. I'd never seen it, but uh, everyone knows the iconic scene of them playing chess on the beach. You can get that from Monty Python or, you know, mm -hmm. any other like parodies. There's so many parodies of that it's almost like a meme now. So I was kind of building off of that. So when I saw the original movie, I was really moved by um, the character in this story arc and his, his conflict. So then, you know, I was inspired to just take a 180 degree turn and turn it into a drama <laughs> using those characters. But still, the humor stuff, since it started out that way, it was still peppered in throughout the whole story. So in that sense, it has like a very strange take. It's a story you kind of have to experience because it's kind of hard to describe. When I saw the movie, I was really taken by the, that hero's journey and what he had to go through. And I just felt like either way, my goal in writing a story and drawing it is to provide the reader with emotional satisfaction in the end. Like when they read it, it's like, oh, that was great. And that could be either you laugh your ass off and that's emotional satisfaction, or it could be, you know, cry your eyes out. And that's also emotional satisfaction. So one or the other or both, either way, you should give the readers an experience that they felt like, wow, this is, this is really worth having read. <laughs> and then it's also a chance to do uh, my artwork stuff that I do. And it's very different from the look of my uh, superhero stuff. I think that's what everyone has seen of my work, but it's usually colored by someone else and inked by someone else and written by someone else. And then in the end, I, I don't almost, I almost don't recognize it as my work. So this is just pure what my stuff looks like. And then also me choosing the subject matter, which is a little oddball. And I'm not sure if that really represents me or just a reaction to having drawn the other type of stuff for a quarter century. So I might've just gone too far in the other way to imitate some art house movie type stuff. It was very creatively rewarding for me to do. And I'm proud of it. And I was surprised from the comments. And this is the great thing about Instagram. People will let you know how it's going. You know, Whether the jokes are landing, you hear comments like, oh, I can't wait to see what happens next, or I want to know what happens to them. That's when you know that you built it properly. The conflict is compelling. And then uh, the characters are likable. That was a big relief. Like, I didn't know if I could do that. Yeah, even at my age, I had no idea if I was able to create that, conjure that writing sense. So that was finding out that there are people who really enjoyed it and wanted to see what happens next, but also didn't want it to end. Like, those are all great things to hear. And the high from really, like you did a home run. And this is like something I want to do more and more of. So it was a great eye-opening experience for me. And I guess it's come full circle now where it's being picked up by next chapter for a print version. So, and that's also a great affirmation. It's a great story. And just to give you an example, so I read it on the next chapter post, and as I'm reading it, I'm laughing out loud. And two things I'll reference without spoiling stuff is going to Starbucks and then going to meet Destiny. And I'm laughing, and my wife does not read comics, and I tell her what I just read. And she starts laughing, and she goes, that sounds really good. I said, it's great. I think you'd like this. So 
that's high praise because she's not into the stuff I'm into and she thought it was great. So you did a wonderful job with it. And you mentioned that it's going to be coming out in print. Your LA partner for publishing this series was born during COVID-19 to connect with fans of writers and artists in the absence of having live conventions this year. So the great company developed a new graphic media publishing and distribution platform, Next Chapter. That's one word, Next Chapter. Did you find them or did they find you? Because I recall a year or so ago, you were wondering how you would distribute this. Like, what's the right platform? What is the right way to present it? Well, it was published in part one other time through Heavy Metal Magazine. They started up an imprint that was just humor. So the other stuff was science fiction, horror, and then they put up a humor publication. So they were only interested in the funny part. So they bought the first like 10 pages uh, and then they also colored it. And they also gave the title the second to last seal for legal reasons. So this thing has quite a few titles and then it's been published in part in heavy metal. So that's another thing. It's like, wow, that's a legitimate publisher. So that was a great feeling. I knew Carl, the publisher of Next Chapter. We met at a convention. Yeah, I was doing work for him and his, uh, what he did, like the branded experience events that he puts on. So I would help visualize that for him. And this is when I was working as an advertising artist. I would draw conceptual stuff for people to communicate at a presentation or to kind of gel ideas in their head. And also workshop the ideas with these people. And uh, he was kind of always knew that I drew comics and he was a big fan of Valiant. So when COVID hit, I guess the events he was doing, sort of like those escape room type things or like experience things. You go and a bunch of people get it. It's like a pop-up Disney type event. But, you know, that's pretty much dead for now, at least, because you really can't get a bunch of people together in a room anymore. So I guess he turned to his longtime love for comics, um, realizing that there's a lot you can do with this medium that's outside of just the regular channels of putting out profit. I mean, he does a lot of community outreach type stuff and also wants to push and further the medium. So his version of this book and why I wanted to go through him to do this, the comic is available on Instagram at my site and his site next chapter for free. So you can actually read the whole thing. And then if you felt like you've had the whole experience, then there's no reason to buy the book. (laughs) So he said he wanted to focus on the story behind the story for me to talk about how this came together as a project. So my thinking about the art and the writing and the writing for the first time and, and just little tips and tricks for people who want to go through this themselves. And we're all being very encouraging to anyone who has an idea, a story, that comics are a fantastic medium to get that thing. I mean, you might think like, well, I don't know how to draw and whatever, but your chances of getting a movie made are terrible <laughs> because like even like professional screenwriters who teach screenwriting never really made it to the silver screen, but it doesn't mean that they're bad writers. It's just the system has so many roadblocks along the way. So this is a great way to kind of express yourself if you have a story to tell. So he kind of wanted to kind of educate as much as entertain. You get the full story in print form for the first time, the whole thing in print. So you can actually hold it in your hand, which is kind of unusual. It was always digital as far as I was concerned. The only way I've seen it before. And then in addition to that, it's the director's cut type stuff or director's commentary so that uh, you can understand the process of how something like this is put together. It's great in that sense, too. So you can get a lot out of this 50-page book. And it's available on September 1st. It's a one-day digital drop of the physical book. How does that work, a one-day digital drop of a physical? (laughs) For me, that's the scary thing. I told them I didn't feel comfortable doing a Kickstarter, even though that's the best way to get a lot of money or whatever. But to me, it took a lot to wrap my head around. It's a very public thing, and then they can actually see how many you've sold and how much money you've made. And if it fails, the failure is very public. It's right there for everyone to see. I'm not looking to make a killing on this, so let's try to find the best way to put it out. So 
him being an event designer, he kind of created this event where it's a 24-hour period to get this book, you know, one day only. So, and he's new to this game, so am I. So I'm sure we're going to sell some. So I think you just have to show up at Next Chapter Post, their website, and then order it. Uh, then And then there's signed books and there's a lot of artwork being packaged with it, I guess, randomly. I mean, if fewer than 100 people order, then everyone gets a drawing. But if more than that, then you have a chance of getting a drawing. It's all new, but he has to learn the ropes and I have to learn the ropes too. So just felt very bold and we're going to try it this way and see how it goes. Well, one just sold. That's me. I have to get this because I like to see it online. But like you say, you're annotating this with all these concepts behind it and how you're doing things both from a writing standpoint and from an art standpoint. So for people who like your work and people that are writers and artists and want to get better at it and understand how this process works, this is perfect. So uh, I'm looking forward to seeing it. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of things in there um, that you can put to use right away in terms of like how certain things can get drawn. And then also like even things like in a comic book, there's a lot of exposition you have to get out of the way. And that could really kill your story because you hit some exposition and that's a perfect point to just drop it and come back later and never come back to it. So there's a handful of ways to mitigate all that. I talk about that in the book. And that stuff, if you don't know it, I think you really should because that can make a huge difference in someone actually liking your story. And these are things that I've picked up over an entire lifetime of telling stories. So it's very useful that way from an educational standpoint that you can see kind of as an investment in getting your Netflix pitch <laughs> all the way through. Make a great comic first. And I'm very excited about that education part of it. And you're also working on Batman Beyond, written by Dan Jurgens, <laughs> And also Paul yeah. Pelletier is doing art too when you're working on other issues. And right now you're working on the Big Five O. Right. I mean, I'm not sure if they see it as an anniversary issue. I'll find out when I get the script. <laughs> but yeah, luckily, I take a while to draw the work. And especially with Batman Beyond, the background, it's a speculative world because it's in the future. To get the, all the backgrounds and everything right and all the technology, it takes a lot of planning and designing. And then it also takes a long time to draw because the city is almost a character in itself. Neo Gotham. It does take a while. And then sometimes I really only want to do about like seven and a half issues a year. So that's what they held me to. And then uh, artists will come in and fill in in between. So the big 50th issue is coming up. I haven't started on that yet, but luckily there's a bit of downtime now, which is good because I have this book launch to worry about and all the work behind it. Yeah, I didn't really realize that making your creator own project is one thing, but then actually marketing and pushing it is 100% more work than, than creating it which I'm not used to because Marvel and DC always took care of that. I just did my drawing stuff. So yeah, luckily, uh, Paul is stepping in for a couple of issues. And I'm coming back on the 50th one, which I can't wait to see what's about. <laughs> I'll know when I get to the plot in about a week. Well, I breathe a sigh of relief because when DC had their editorial layoff and then they cut some titles, including some that I get like Hawkman and I sobbed when I saw that, Batman Beyond looks safe. It's always been a consistent seller for them. I mean, it really is kind of an outlier type book. And I don't know what it is about it, but it was always kind of very steady. And that's something that they always want to have. Whether it fits into their overall superstructure, it's all very hush-hush, and it's also in development now. So who knows? I mean, Dan Jurgens is like, you know, the general rule is have a blast on it. <laughs> because, uh, you know, who knows what's going to happen at you know, death metal or whatever, all this stuff. And then sometimes books go away and then they come back, you know, when the, the time is right. So I don't know, like, I know Teen Titans is also a consistent seller, but it's coming to an end at a certain issue and then, you know, probably going to come back later. So. Well, that's the world of publishing we live in right now. It can end at any moment or change as it needs to in the 21st century. But that's work. 
let's talk about some fun stuff. Let's kick back with the creator and learn more about you, Sean. What do you like to do for relaxation? I'm not really into relaxation. <laughs> I guess drawing is so, to me, endlessly crazy satisfying. So a lot of times when I'm at the beach in Hawaii or whatever, I'm like, it'd be cool to get back to doing some drawing because this is great for a while, but it's starting to get boring because I'm lying here and the sun is really hot. <laughs> so in terms of relaxation, it's not physical relaxation. I switch to other creative activities. So I do a lot of house renovating, building things, building furniture. It takes a lot of time. My wife would go through Architectural Digest and see something where she's like, I would love to have this. And I'm looking and like, I would love to make that. And that becomes an all-consuming thing, very creatively rewarding, but it does get in the way of the comics. So there's, I guess, too many interests. I think. <laughs> uh, I do also do a lot of sculpture and making uh, designer toys and stuff like that. All of those things are very labor-intensive and they take a lot of time. And my bad habit is that whatever I'm very interested in, I'll always find an excuse to do it or kind of rationalize it. When I think a person with a little bit more of a sense of responsibility will say like, you know, you might want to do this, but you have a real deadline right now and something to need your attention now, <laughs> like the kids' homework or whatever. I do have a lot of interest. So I guess to relax, I would just switch to another project. I, you know, I find woodworking and furniture building very relaxing. You can get very zen and into it and, you know, you can really grind away at it mentally, but still it's that type of stress is actually quite rewarding, I think. I think in the end, I'm a process junkie. I like to see how things are made and how things are done. And then I like to make them and do them. <laughs> Relaxation is not really something that maybe when I'm old, I'll, I'll get into it. Right now, just creating, I think, is a lot of fun. Interesting. My son's the same way my oldest son. He likes to always be building something, making something. And he wants to be an engineer someday. And... We're not too far from Nellis Air Force Base, and we saw the jets fly overhead during COVID when they were making their tour throughout the country to inspire folks to hang in there. And my wife said to my son, you know, if you go in the Air Force, you can fly one of those planes. Don't you want to fly one of those planes? And he looked really disinterested, and he said, Mommy, I don't want to fly a plane. I want to build a plane. Good job, kid. Yeah, <laughs> yeah there's some people who kind of just build things. Yeah, I guess it's very primal to make things with your hands, mm -hmm. and there's a certain satisfaction in that. You know, there are people who get carpal tunnel syndrome doing things that your hands are not supposed to be doing. But whatever you're meant to do that we were designed as human beings to do, you can do it endlessly, stopping to only sleep and eat. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I find things like sculpting to be that way, which is strange because then you tell me to do taxes and I can't even, I just procrastinate forever. <laughs> so, <laughs> <Not> alone. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, we're builders by nature. And if you really are into that kind of thing, it can be an all-consuming activity. Next question. What was your favorite birthday and why? Um, we were not much for birthdays. You know, these days, you get past a certain age, it just becomes a reminder. I just yes. passed the birthday. Um, and it's just a reminder of uh, just getting old. So it's kind of a, a very dour thing to think. But on my birthday, usually I become like a Clint Eastwood and Gran Torino, just like kind of grumbly, like some of the happy birthday on growl. <laughs> but I guess when I was younger... I was a bit traumatized because in school they would talk about birthdays and what they got for the birthday. So I told my mother that I want to have a party because everyone's having parties. The thing have it's going to be great. I found when the party happens, like, wow, this is really not fun at all because I'm an introvert. <laughs> I don't like being the center of attention. And I brought this on me. And then after that, I never asked for it again because, you know, there's a lot of artist types that are more head down and do your work, whatever, you know, this whole public speaking or being the center of attention, it's not something I really want to be part of. So yeah, the favorite birthday, 
probably is the one that just very low key, you know, and have a cake. That would be great. <laughs> That's all I need. When you think back to uh, your early teenage years, what posters and or pictures did you have on your bedroom wall? I remember having the Road Warrior poster that I loved because I loved that movie. And then Blade Runner also. Because of those, I think it really says a lot about me. I mean, it was the science fiction-y type stuff, which I think was in my wheelhouse. They were both very visual movies. And then also great stories. The main character really had like, you know, great conflicts and everything. And both of them are kind of like reluctant heroes. They didn't necessarily want to step up to the plate, but they realized that they're the best person for the job. And it's not about them. They have to get past themselves and do something for the greater good. Those two movies, I think, um, really struck a chord with me. So I had those posters. I was never really a music type guy because I guess I'm more of a an art type person. Not only was it those two, but it was only those two on my wall. It was the exclusion of almost everything else except for um, comics. Sometimes you have like a cool pinup, I'll put that up. But that was more just for becoming a better artist, just to make sure that I see it every day, hopefully be able to internalize what I like about it. And also there were a lot of pages torn out of Muscle and Fitness magazine. And it's not because I like those things. It's just, again, like when I walk by, I want to see human anatomy as much as possible so that I can internalize it. So those are all very functional reasons to have that stuff up. That was my room as a teenager. Now, this is the hypothetical situation where you're stuck on a deserted island. You can have one book or set of books with you that are related for pleasure. This isn't about survival. This is just something you want to read again or something you've been meaning to read. What would be that book? For me, I think it would have to be Watchmen. Uh, even though I've read it over and over again, that's one that you can keep going back to. The only downside, it was probably inspired me to write and draw, which I don't know if I'm going to be able to do on that island. But to me, it represents the far end of the spectrum in terms of the apex of what you can do in this medium, in terms of top-level writing. And just as a package, I think it can't be beat. That's the far end. That's the North Star for me that I'm heading towards. And probably will never get there, but that's the North Star. So I think I would have to just to honor that because it represents so much of who I am. It would be that. I think a lot of stuff that I need to watch movie-wise and need to read novel-wise, I never got around to. Probably too many to mention, <laughs> so I can't distill down to one, but I just know that I'm behind on all of that, and <laughs> I just wish I had more time to actually take all that stuff in. I know. I'm right there with you. Another hypothetical. A publisher is going to make an action figure of you. What would be the accessory you have? <laughs> it's a bit difficult because I'm not a guy that's into material things at all. So it would be some kind of um, utility thing. I guess I do so much drawing, <laughs> so it would be like a pencil or uh, for the coolest look, I would hope it'd be some sort of weapon that I made. <laughs> but yeah, but most likely it's the humble pencil, which would be a horrible accessory for an action figure. <laughs> <laughs> but the one that I'd probably make the most use of. When you're relaxing, what is your beverage of choice? That's another thing. Like, I don't indulge in my beverage of choice. It'll probably be like a Coke, but I don't think I've drank a Coke in the last couple of years, a few years. I don't drink it that much at all. I think I've read somewhere but the only beverage you ever need in life is water. And then when I heard that, it's like, that can't be true. After thinking about it, yeah, all you really need is water and it's free and it's everywhere. And really you should make a point to drink that pretty much in the exclusion of everything else. So anything else that you're paying for or it tastes good because it has sugar in it or caffeine or carbonated, it's enjoyable. But <laughs> the other thing is that if you do start drink, I don't drink coffee too much or at all. I do drink tea, but I remember when I first started drinking, I was like, oh, this is okay. Um, and I drank it every day for a while. 
And then now it's not just okay, I need to have them. Mm -hmm. So anything can become addictive, especially with caffeine. So if I see a beverage, I say, well, this is fantastic. I was like, I should probably not drink it. That's a special diet. It tastes good, spit it out. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, of course, it wouldn't hurt on occasion. And I would just taste things just to remind myself what they taste like. But I don't understand this if people, if they like milkshake, to have that every day with their meal as a beverage, I think that's just terrible. <laughs> oh, no. That is a meal. Not not a really good meal. <laughs> <laughs> Knowing what's good for me and what I like are two different things. So I try hard not to go too far down the road of things. That, and I think it all comes back to being a creator. If you create stuff like write and draw comics, I think the return you get from that is so uh, enjoyable that nothing material or nothing you eat or drink really comes close. So you can cut all that out. It's great that way. And <laughs> that you don't feel like you're lacking in, in your life in any way. Sean, what is the oddest job you ever had outside of comics? I come from a family of doctors, and one of my father's friends was a doctor who worked in the cytology lab, which is basically cells suspended in fluids. So it's basically tissue samples that are suspended in fluid. And he worked in Washington, D.C. and had this clinic where he would examine cells suspended in fluid that came in from the clinics, free clinics all over Washington, D.C. And he needed help with someone, a technician, to help process those things. So as I was going to San Diego Comic-Con, I was working that job for money. And it was a government job, so you really did like three hours of work, and the rest of the time I just draw my sketchbook. And it's really weird because Barry Window Smith called me at that job. <laughs> and the cells suspended in the fluid are basically pap smears that came in from the clinics all over Washington, free clinics. So a lot of the women there from the homeless shelters and I would take those slides and then process them and dye the cells so they can be read by the doctors when they see it in the microscope. So it's a service that the government provides for free health care. That was a strange job. I mean, I didn't see it as strange at the time. But then Barry Windows Smith asked, like, where am I calling you? Because it sounds like a lot of commotion, like a lot of cleaning. And I told him, like, well, it's a cytology lab. And then he's like, oh, boy. And then I asked him, well, what's wrong? And he says, you know, I have very strong feelings about Scientology. <laughs> I'm like, no, no, it's not Scientology, it's Scientology, so it's a clinic. Then he kind of had this kind of forlorn expression again. And then I was like, what's wrong? It's like, he said, that sounds horrible. <laughs> so it's like, you need to get into this business. And I'm like, yeah, you, I need your help. <laughs> so uh, that was our first conversation after San Diego. And then uh, soon after that, I moved to New York to work what they call Knob Row, the studio in Valiant. My final question what was a missed opportunity you regret now? And second part of that is, what is the best opportunity you ever seized? Uh, well, I mean, the best one, obviously, I think, was Valiant is where it all began. I can draw a direct line from getting on into Marvel, from like getting into Valiant, and then kind of working my way up to the flagship book. So EXO was the flagship book, so I kind of set my eye on that and kind of sold myself as an artist for EXO, which took a while, but I eventually got to it. And then from then, there was a quick stepping stone onto Iron Man, and that was the beginning of the Marvel career. So that led to Wolverine and all the other Avengers stuff that I did. So it all began with that one valiant job. So that would be the best. The one that I missed, hard to say. I'm sure it has probably something to do with chickening out, where an opportunity comes along, and then someone thinks, like, you'll be great at this. And I guess it's a little bit of an imposter syndrome in my head. I was like, no, I won't be good at it. <laughs> so I said, you better go with someone else. And there's been multiple times where that has happened. And you know, it's kind of useless speculating where it could have led to, because I think when it really mattered, if I knew it would really matter, I would step up. I mean, it was scary moving to New York City, you know, being growing up in the suburbs of Maryland, then just moving to New York City. But I knew like this is a move that regardless of how scary it is, you got to do it because it all begins here. 
So there's been similar things that maybe the stakes I knew probably wouldn't pay off as much. So I would kind of stack myself out of it. So yeah, I haven't really given that much thought as to um, what I may have missed opportunity-wise. But knowing my personality, there's probably been a bunch of things because things happen when you get out and you meet people, you make connections, and you experience the world outside. I did a lot of just staying at home with my head down, doing the drawing stuff. And at a convention, like at San Diego, there's editors and publishers and other artists walking around that you're just kind of connecting by happenstance in a very target-rich environment full of these people that you should know that could really do something for you. I would be in the hotel room doing a commission to get an extra 80 bucks. And I think doing that for two decades probably took a toll. <laughs> I mean, I, there's probably opportunities that never happened because there was you know, a couple times a year where you can get out and actually meet people. And I just felt like drawing for fun and money instead. So uh, I made those choices and looking back, it probably wasn't wise, but at the time, you know, maybe because I didn't take control of what was the best thing to do, I would sit down in Artist Alley, align with form. I have trouble saying no to people because they're so insistent they need a drawing, so they're like, oh, I'll fit you in. <laughs> and then my whole time at the convention is booked. And that situation repeated itself for years, you know, for decades, actually, so. That's probably, I know, wasn't the smartest thing, but I don't know if I could find a way to get out of it. Just to tell these people, like, I'm not going to do your drawing because I've got to go to the bar. <laughs> that's, that's what I would have to do, and I really can't see myself saying that. Listeners, wherever you are now, if you're at the bar or at work or whatever, <laughs> this is your chance. Don't miss this opportunity. One day only, September 1st, for a print copy of Wingman by Sean Chen, his first written work, fully illustrated by him with notes. Sean, thank you so much for being on Creator Talks. Oh, it was a lot of fun. Learned a lot about myself. <laughs> I know it's been a long time coming, so I'm glad we finally got to sit down and do this. Okay, folks, let's get to the details since time's a-wasting. Sean's book, Wingman, Compendium of an Artist's First Writing Experience, will be available for order on Tuesday, September 1st at 9 a.m., Pacific Daylight Time, and it will end on Wednesday, September 2nd, 8.59 a.m. Pacific Daylight Time. The book will be 64 pages. It'll be 9.5 wide by 7.5 tall, a soft cover. This first edition will be limited to the orders they receive during the 24-hour period. One out of ten books will contain an original sketch by Sean Chen. All books will be hand-numbered and contain a print autograph by Sean. This is the first published work by Next Chapter, a new business venture. So the site is nextchapterpost.com. Don't just use Next Chapter unless you're wanting to buy bankruptcy software. The website is nextchapterpost.com. And the price for this limited edition is $28. So don't delay order today because you only have 24 hours. Coming up next, I'm starting out September strong with another interview coming out on Labor Day, September 7th. My guest will be from Down Under, Chris Gooch. Chris joins me to discuss his new upcoming graphic novel, Under Earth. What's it about? The inmates of an extensive underground prison struggle to build meaningful lives in a broken system. This is the most ambitious graphic novel to date from the rising indie star Chris Gooch, who also wrote the award-winning Bottled and Deep Breaths. I conducted our interview well in advance, so that book comes out through Top Shelf IDW on November 3rd. So please join me on September 7th, Labor Day, to learn more about the book Under Earth and more about Chris Gooch. And then I'll be back every other Thursday with a new interview. 
Meanwhile, you can follow me on social media at Greater Talks Pod. That's at Greater Talks Pod on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. To correspond with me, email me at creatortalks at gmail.com. That's creatortalks at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening today. I really appreciate you spending some time with me and my guests. Please spread the word about Creator Talks. That's all for this week for Creator Talks. This has been your host, Christopher Calloway. Until next time. Thank you.